Thank you so much, George. Well, good evening, everyone. 1 Kings chapter 18 is where we will be tonight. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to open your Bible or open your Bible or turn on your app that has your Bible on it. Go to 1 Kings chapter 18. So we're looking at prayer. Morning times, we're looking at what it is to pray or, kind of, or pray, some kind of practical helps and guides in the morning time. Even time, we want to kind of zoom in on big prayers in the Bible or revival that happens in the Bible. 1 Kings 18 is a super famous, super famous chapter in the Bible. Mount Carmel, a big battle, a big um, showdown that happens on this mountain, so familiar. And it is my prayer tonight that we will see revival that happens on this mountain and that will ignite within us a passion to see God's power, God's glory, God's greatness exalted across our land as well. 1 Kings chapter 18. Are you there? Starting to read at verse 16. It's also on the screen behind, but it's also helpful if you have your own copy. This is quite a long reading, so I'm going to start at verse 16. I'm going to finish at verse 39. Take some time to read God's word. So breaking in halfway through verse 16. Ahab went to meet Elijah, verse 17. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baals. Now summons the people from all over Israel to meet on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab went or sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophet choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will, I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call in the name of your God, and I will call in the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call in the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called in the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. And then Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is God. Perhaps he is in deep thought or busy or traveling. But he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered no one paid attention. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him. 
And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes, descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to withhold two sheaths of seed. He arranged the wood cut the bull into pieces and laid it in the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it in the offering of the wood. Do it again, he said, and he did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me for these, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and it also licked up the water in the trench. Verse 39, when all the people saw this, they fell flat on their faces and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray before we unpack this. Powerful passage. Father God, thank you for your word. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you come. Come now, Holy Spirit. You are welcome in this place. Pray, Holy Spirit, that in this place you just presence yourself. Bring a sense of awe and wonder and reverence, not familiarity or boredom or I've heard this before, but hearts that are open, ears that are open to hear from you tonight. Move powerfully. In this place, I pray. I ask God that you will speak through me. Help me to be faithful to this text tonight, God. Come, Holy Spirit, move. We pray these things in your name. Everyone said, Amen. The choices we make. This passage, if you've noticed during it, is about making a choice. Do you know that we make choices all the time? You do know that. We make choices all the time. Do you know that the average adult makes 35,000 choices every single day? 35,000 choices every single day. And do you know that 227 of those 35,000 choices you make every day concern food? 227 of them concern food. Don't believe me? Well, say you go to the grocery store and you go to buy cheese. Sounds like a simple task, doesn't it? Sounds like an easy task. But which of the 1,700 varieties of cheese are you going to pick from? Let's make it a little bit more simple. What about bread? Go to the shop just to buy bread. That sounds easy. But of the 200 different types of 
breads that you can get, which one are you going to choose? What about pasta? Well, you've only 350 choices there. What about rice? I used to think there was just boiled rice or fried rice. But did you know that there's 40,000 different types of rice? And whenever I heard that, I thought, the queue at my local Chinese is going to be an awful lot longer the next time I go, as people try to decide what type of rice they get with their Peking chicken. 40,000 different types of rice. And these are only decisions around food. Like we haven't even got to the serious things of life. We haven't even got to the big issues of life. Every day we are making choices. And here we are in this passage tonight and it's all about making one choice. And that sounds easy. One spiritual choice. That's all you have to do is make this one choice. And it's either between God or Beale, but make one choice tonight and that sounds easy. Or to put it in a modern context, because we don't know who Beale is, put it in a modern context, you either choose God or you choose the world. That's it. Like go hard after one or go hard after the other, but don't take both. Just pick one, and that sounds so, so simple. But here's the weight of this sermon. The weight that I feel as I'm preaching this sermon to you, the weight of this sermon, the weight of this text, the weight of this decision is that this is the most important decision that you are going to make in your life. Literally, this is the most important decision that you will ever make in your life. So here we are in 1 Kings chapter 18 with one of the most, sentence, most famous sentences in the book of 1 or 2 Kings, or in fact, one of the most famous ones throughout the whole Bible that we all know. Verse 21, how much longer, says Elijah, to the people gathered in front of him, how much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. Make a choice. Simple. And to help the people choose, God and Baal are going to go to battle. So here we are with this most famous of challenges, with one of the most famous of showdowns in the entire Bible, as God and Baal go to battle. So we come to the fight ready. Big fight is looming. Our camera picks up the key players. Did you notice them in the start of the passage we read? The key players as they assemble for battle. Here we are in the blue corner. We've got King Ahab, Queen Jezebel, Baal, and the 850 prophets of this false god. On the other side, in the red corner, we have the Christian god. We have this prophet called Elijah, and we have a nation called Israel. Big fight night. Can you feel the anticipation of this big fight? Once upon a time, in the Old Testament, you had a kingdom. Do you see the next slide? You had this kingdom, and it was ruled by King started off with Saul, then it went to Samuel, then it went to David, then it went to Solomon, and it kind of goes on. But in the beginning, it was a united kingdom. Not like our united kingdom, but rather than having these two different shades of blue, it was a whole map that was all called the United Kingdom. But then sin and rebellion and jealousy came, and everything split. So now you have this northern kingdom and you have this southern kingdom. And it's the northern kingdom that we're focused in on today. So we're focusing in on Israel, this kind of northern bit. We're not going to deal with the, uh, Judah in the bottom. We're going to deal with Israel at the top here. Israel is ruled 
this is what 1 Kings and 2 Kings is all about, by a succession of evil kings. In fact, you get 19 evil kings, and every single one of them just get worse and worse and worse. And if you were to work your way through 1 Kings, you pick up phrases like this here. He starts off with Jeroboam, and he is not a good king. So we could boo him. He's not good. In fact, we read that he did more evil than all who lived before him. The king after him did evil in the sight of the Lord. The next king provoked the Lord to anger. Another king did evil in the sight of the Lord. And I think we're getting the trend here. I think we're getting the point. It keeps spiraling more and more and more out of control until we come to chapter 16 of 1 Kings. And that's the first time we get introduced to this king called Ahab. Ahab marries Jezebel. It's really Jezebel who's the one that controls the king or controls the kingdom. If you control the king, you can control the kingdom. And that's exactly what she does in this year. Baal's not a good guy, and Baal's not a good guy because he's influenced heavily by Jezebel, and he is the first Christian king who sets up this altar or worship of Baal. And here's what it says in chapter 16 of Ahab. Chapter 16, verse 33 says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all kings before him. It sounds a lot like judges that we looked at last week. These really, really dark, dark And what does God do in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the evil, in the midst of the corruption, in the midst of the, this is chaotic and hopeless? He always sends that little glimmer of hope. So last week, Samuel comes along as that glimmer of hope. This week, we get to see Elijah, and he comes along as our glimmer of hope in this very, very dark period of the history of Israel. Elijah's name is really interesting. So he's a prophet, which basically means he is God's mouthpiece. So when God wants to speak, he spoke through a prophet, and Elijah is that prophet. His name is really interesting. His name's really interesting because if you chop it up a little bit in the Hebrew, it's kind of nerdy, but it's really, really interesting. So the Hebrew name for God is the word Elohim. It comes up on the screen, Elohim. You can shorten that to E-L, So there's a little clue of how Elijah's name starts. The Jah bit comes from Yahweh or Jehovah. You abbreviate it down, you get the Jah. A little bit in the middle, the I, the Hebrew for I always means my. So put it all together, big reveal. What do we get? My God is Jehovah. So that's what his name means. That's what Elijah's name means, my God is Jehovah, or my God will save. So you can see what God is doing in the midst of this? Before Elijah even turns up to the battle, before the battle even starts, before he even opens his mouth, God is making this bold, bold statement through Elijah. He is saying that God is a God who saves. The challenge then comes as they're standing in Mount Carmel, all assembled, all ready for battle. Elijah makes this challenge. How long will you waver between these two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow Baal. Can you see that Elijah cut straight to the heart of the issue? He's not saying that, hey, it's okay to follow Baal, 
some days during the week. It's okay that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the rest of the week you can follow God. It's okay to do your God thing on a Sunday and the rest of the week live however you want. It's okay to do your Baal thing and your God thing and just kind of dance and flirt with both of them. He's not saying that. He's saying choose one or the other. And if you choose God, I said at the start, like pursue that with every fiber in your being. But if you're going to choose Baal, then equally pursue that with every fiber of your being. Don't pick one or the other and try to mash them together. This is what the people of Israel are famous for. They are famous for being rescued by the one true living God with signs and wonders and miracles all the way throughout the Old Testament. They are famous for being chosen by God, the God who no one else compares to, but they're also famous for going, do you know what? That other nation has a God and I quite like the sound of that God. Or they have another God and I quite like, the, I quite like what that might bring me. So let's just add them all together. And these are stories that are written over 3,000 years ago. But doesn't it sound an awful lot like our modern day culture as well? Where just anything seems to go Elijah is saying, you cannot sit on the fence. You cannot remain indecisive. You cannot remain uncommitted. You cannot remain lukewarm. What's it going to be? And we're not on a mountain tonight, but it's the same question. Who are you going to choose? Who are you going to follow? Notice what the people do in verse 21. The people stand still in silence. They say absolutely nothing. Stunned silence. The fight challenge was for each side to prepare a bull, cut it in pieces, put it in wood, but not to set fire on it. The fight would be won when in verse 24. You call in the name of your God, I'll call in the name of my God. Whatever God answers by fire, that is the God who is the one true God whom we should worship. Everyone agrees to that. And here we come to the showdown. The scene is set, the stage is set. Television crews and sports commentators have gathered on Mount Carmel for fight night. This is the one that we've all been waiting for. And the pre-fight analysis, a commentator will remind us that the setting of this battle, Mount Carmel, is actually known as the Mount of Baal. So here we are on Baal's sacred pad. Advantage, Baal, says mountain. Verse 22, we see that Elijah is up against either 450 or 850, depending on whether you put both those groups of the 450 and the 400 together. Let's say we put all 850 together. So it's one man against these 850. Double advantage to Baal. In verse 25, Elijah lets the prophets of Baal go first. Triple advantage to them. They're on their mountain. There's 850 of them. They get to go first. Surely they're going to win this battle. That's the expectation, at least. It would seem that the odds are stacked heavily against God's people in this passage. This is an important... Like, you know the end of the story, but pretend for a moment that we don't know the end of the story. If you're at this point watching, reading this for the first time, the expectation is that... Baal is going to win the battle. There is no way this relatively unknown prophet is going to step out against 850 on Baal's mountain. In the moments before this fight, 
We notice that the fight entrance music is all silenced. Both groups walk in. It's all silenced. All that pre-fight trash talk is all muted as well. Each side look at the other and eyeball each other. And this is an intimidating scene. Ding, ding. Round one. Bale goes first. 850 step forward to do their thing. They've got their game faces on. They're ready for battle. They immediately begin to cry out to Bale to do something, to act. And here's the thing. They are worshiping Baal, and Baal is supposed to be the god of fire, the god of the seasons. This is in the bag for them. They step out and they begin to pray. Hear us, Baal. Answer us, Baal. And they shout that, and they shout that, and they shout that, and they shout that for half the day. But guess what? Nothing happens. No one hears. So they step things up a little bit and they do a bit of a war dance here in this passage. Feet pounding on this ground. Dust rising. Loud chants. Make no mistake. This is a scary, intimidating dance. War dance. Some scary alpha male intimidating hacker style war dance, no doubt. Notice what happens in verse 27. This has been going on for several Hours, dancing, yelling, shouting for several hours. And at this point, our boy Elijah interrupts from the sidelines. You see what he says? Verse 27, he begins to taunt them. He begins to goad them. He begins to have a go at them. That's a bold move. That's a bold move. Why don't you try shouting louder, says Elijah from the sidelines. Could you imagine if you were the other group of Israelites standing behind him thinking, what are you doing, Elijah? This is not going to end well here, Elijah. These guys are determined. These guys are, like they're doing war dance stuff here and you're going to step out and start, start slagging them off? Why don't you try shouting louder, he says. We're on Baal's mountain. He's God, isn't he? Maybe he's preoccupied or maybe he's busy or maybe he's dealing with a phone call or maybe he's popped out for the afternoon. Shout a bit louder. What a cheeky little prophet. What a bold little prophet. I kind of like him. I kind of have a little bit of that in myself. Just couldn't help myself, but just kind of do that. He hits a raw nerve. Because ding, ding, round two, they step things up to a whole new level of crazy and they begin to cut themselves and they begin to bleed and blood flows everywhere as was common of their practice. This is a bloody, chaotic, crazy, loud, mad scene. So surely now someone is going to take notice. Surely now if Baal was busy, he's going to take account of what they are doing now. But verse 29, it seems that Baal is on mute. No response. No one answers. No one pays any attention. Remember in verse 21, the people of Israel, the people of God are silent. Here we are in verse 26, round one of the battle, and Baal is also silent. And we come to verse 29, and Baal is still silent again. What an embarrassing home defeat. What an embarrassing home defeat. Like the God of fire just ran out of fire in this particular day. 
What an embarrassing home defeat. So the scene is set now for Elijah. Baal, his prophets, Ahab, the pagan nation, it's a big fat fail for them. What's Elijah going to do? The men step away. 850 of them step away and out comes this lone figure of Elijah. Ding, ding, round three. Elijah starts off by digging a trench. A bit strange, but he digs a trench. And what must be the dumbest move in the history of dumbest moves in the Old Testament? He proceeds to get jars of water and pour them over the top of the sacrifice. What? He pours them over the top, four big jars. He pours them over the top of the sacrifice, not just once, not just twice, but three times. That's a little strange. I don't think that's going to help. I don't need to tell you lovely, educated people that water is the stuff we use to put fires out, not the stuff we use to ignite fires. This is soaking, soaking wet. And remember, the deal was not how wet can we get the sacrifice, but how hot, how much fire can come of this here. It almost seems that Elijah is going out of his way to make this impossible. Steps four, what is he doing? All eyes are on him. All eyes watching every move of him. They've watched the water being poured out. They step forward, they watch this. What does Elijah do? He talks to God. In comparison to the actions of the prophets of Baal, Elijah's approach is really different. There's no shouting. There's no dancing. There's no cutting. There's no frantic, desperate prayers. No day-long ritual. All Elijah does is pray to God with 58 words. A prayer of faith. And this is a prayer in which God is going to be center stage. This is a prayer in which God is going to turn up in a powerful supernatural way. This is a prayer that the God of the ages who has always been faithful is going to turn up and be faithful to the people. This is a prayer where Elijah isn't going to be center stage. God is going to be center stage. Elijah is not going to be held up. God is going to be held up. And God answers. God answers immediately. And immediately after he said his amen, fire comes, burns up everything. Not just the sacrament, burns up everything. Everything is utterly consumed in this. Everything is completely gone and God wins the battle for the people. Just like that. Just like that. And the people, verse 39, they fall on their faces and they worship God. That is the only response. The only response to God is to fall on your face and worship him. What is the point of this passage? Well, as I said, all the way throughout this passage, there is that question that the people are faced with. Who are you going to follow? Who will you follow? What is the point of this passage? Well, the point of the passage in 1 Kings 18 is that Baal is dead, but God is alive. Baal is not powerful, but God is all powerful. Baal is not to be worshipped and to be rejected. God is the only God that we are to follow and that we are to worship. So here's the question tonight, about 3,000 years after this passage. Who are we, who are you going to follow? 
And I want you to take a moment just to let that run through your head. Not go over your head, but actually to think of that question. Like this isn't some little cute thing we're doing at the end. Who who are you going to follow? Seriously, seriously think of that. Who are you going to follow? And I guess it's easy for you and me in the post-fight analysis of 1 Kings 18 to say, well, Baal never had a chance. Like those prophets, like how dumb How dumb are they? There's no way they were going to win this battle. It's easy to see the flaws of the idols that they followed. It's easy to see that that side is a failure and Elijah's side is the heroes. But what if we do a a little closer analysis on Elijah and his side? And think about the heroes in Elijah's side. Because not everyone on Elijah's side is the hero. Because who steps forward? Elijah. Who else steps forward? Well, no one else. Where are the people of Israel? Well, they're off in the background somewhere watching Elijah. They can't be described as the heroes of the story. If you don't believe that, then you have to do a bit of a rewind. So verse 39, they're worshiping God. Rewind to verse 21, and what are they doing? They're standing still. They have absolutely nothing to say. The challenge has been laid down. Who are you going to follow? And they are completely and utterly silent with no words. And they don't move a muscle until verse 34. Standing about watching Elijah. They stand and watch Elijah single-handedly dig this ditch. They watch Elijah single-handedly lift these heavy stones to build this altar. They watch Elijah single-handedly kill, cut, and prepare this bull for sacrifice. They do carry some water. They carry water quite a a few times in this passage. And they carry the water and they pour it over the top of the sacrifice. But at no point do they go, Elijah, what on earth are we doing? They never question it. They are silent until verse 39. They're standing in the background. And it's easy for you and me to analyze that and say, well, dum-dums. Just, just standing off in the background, just watching. That, that's not great. That's not significant. That's not important. That's not good. They just watch. They just watch. And it's easy to analyze that. It's easy to say that we might be different. We might do things in a slightly different way might be easy for us to mock them for being silent and for standing back and for doing nothing. For being so silly to worship this idol called Baal. But then aren't we an awful lot like the people of Israel? Like we don't have idols like Baal, but we have modern day things that we worship and that we cherish. And whenever we're faced with that question tonight, who are you going to serve? Who are you going to follow? We can be stunned into silence as well because there's idols in our hearts. One quote says this, the human heart is an idol factory that takes good things like the success, like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify or make gods out of those things and put them at the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we them. 
And the reason that we stand still and say nothing is because our identity can be so wrapped up in those idols that we are terrified that someone might come away and take those things from us. We're terrified to follow God because that means that I have to give up all these things. That means I just have to follow after God myself. And is God worth it? Is God worth it? Wouldn't it be amazing tonight if I could prove to you that God is worth it? Wouldn't it be amazing at this point, the doors at the back fling open and my beautiful assistant, who isn't going to come in and do this, by the way, but just imagine, let's pretend, my beautiful assistant wheels in an altar, a one I prepared earlier altar, big stone altar on the top of it is a chopped up bull. We wheel it up in the front and wouldn't it be amazing if I could use the illustration of I just pray? And wouldn't it be amazing tonight if fire fell from heaven and burned that whole thing up? That would be a pretty awesome illustration tonight. I'm certain that that would go viral. It's a bit of a dangerous illustration. It's not exactly health and safety friendly. It would possibly be my last illustration I would ever do in this church, but it'd be worth it because I would be known as Pastor Mark the Firestarter Brown, and I'm okay with that nickname. I'm pretty down with that. But here's the thing. We don't want a repeat performance of what happened on Mount Carmel. And the reason we don't want that is because there's something significant about fire in the Old Testament. And there's something significant about fire when it is surrounding the altars here. Because what is on this altar? There's a sacrifice on this altar. There's a bull on this altar. And in the Old Testament, for us to atone for our sin or to make peace with God or to be saved, there had to be a sacrifice. There had to be a substitute. So they'd use a bull or a goat or some kind of animal. And whenever fire came, whenever fire burnt that up and completely consumed that, then God's anger or God's judgment or God's wrath was satisfied and you could have peace with God. And in 1 Kings 18, one of two things could have happened. Either God's anger and wrath and judgment and fire could have fallen on the people who have sinned and who have rejected him, who are following hard after other gods, could have fallen on them, or it could have fallen on the sacrifice. And God in his grace and in his mercy and in his love allows it to fall on the sacrifice. And here we are today, and one of two things could happen. Either God's anger and wrath and judgment could fall on me, could fall on you, or it could fall on someone else. And that is why we need Jesus. Jerry Bridges said, our situation was so desperate that, the, that only the death of God's own son on a cruel and shameful cross was sufficient to resolve the problem. On a cross, it is where Jesus takes our sin and assumes complete responsibility for it. On the cross, he absorbs all of God's wrath so that we can fall on our faces so that we can stand with hands in the air, shouts of praise at what God has done. That's why we sing songs to Jesus 
and not to a bull. That's why we sing songs to Jesus and not to Elijah. We sing songs to Jesus because Jesus is the only one who can come as our sacrifice, our substitute, and make us right before God. So you have fire, and fire represents sacrifice and judgment. But also in the Old Testament, fire represents purity or power or the presence of God. So you know by in our modern worship songs or modern prayers, we will say, God, will you let your fire fall? Will you let your fire come down? And whenever we pray those prayers or sing those songs, we are asking for the presence of God or the power of God to fall in this place. Or you might hear some people saying, yeah, he got saved or she got saved and they are just on fire for Jesus. That's what we want. It's not that we want them to burn up and be consumed and all the rest. We want that just symbolic to mean that God's power, God's presence and God's purity is at work. Whenever people see fire, they feel the power of fire and fire spreads. It's why whenever we look at revival, sometimes we talk about revival fire. And it's revival fire that I want to end on tonight. There was a revival fire, literally a revival fire that fell on Mount Carmel and this nation seemed to repent. Or there's revivals that's happened in our world or in our land and we've called them revival fires. So I want to end tonight by looking at a revival that came here in 1859, the Ulster Revival. I read this. It's something I'm kind of quite interested in, and I've just picked up all these little articles all over the place. And listen to this. This is what happened in 1859 called the Ulster Revival. Where we live, in our land, in a time before we were here, but it happened in our time. What happened in our land. The article I read says this. Before this revival, there was little to encourage genuine believers who had prayed and labored hard for many years with little results or change to the spiritual condition. Amid such darkness, there was still those scattered across the land who prayed faithfully for a mighty work of the Holy Ghost. The beginning of this revival can be traced back to the parish of Connor in County Antrim. Here, not far from Balamina, is a small village called Kells. And God found himself, four young men, this small band prayed and agonized, unmoved by the theories and theologies of man. 1859 saw the church in Connor leading the way as a testimony to God's mighty reviving work. There were some 100 separate prayer meetings a week held in homes and in barns and in schoolrooms and workplaces. These were mostly run by normal church members, one being a butcher who was only saved two years earlier and was, here's the word, on fire for God. The church was never empty, and the 1,000 families that made up the church were seeking God, and souls were being saved on every side. The meetings were solemn, and people earnestly were moved with tears. This was revival. The revival spread out across the whole land as family by family, village by village, town by town, people came to Christ. Within weeks, 10,000 were converted. When the revival hit Balamina, it was dramatic and sudden. Everything seemed at a standstill and the noise of people crying for mercy or singing Praise came from many homes night and day. The fire spread, and in Londonderry, a prayer 
meeting was held daily with 5,000 people. In Coleraine, united meetings were held, working together with one heart and soul. One said of this place, for the last three weeks, it has been like one continual Pentecost. Almost every street, we're in Belfast now, almost every street in Belfast brought forth repentant sinners. The most notorious the most notorious sinners, drunkards and prostitutes in the city were saved. The 1859 revival started in Kells two years earlier through the work of God in the hearts of four new converts who were moved to seek God in prayer. And the result, 100,000 people came to faith in just one year. In just one year. And my prayer more, Lord. In our time, more, Lord. In our time, move by your Spirit. In this meeting tonight, I pray, God, that you by your Spirit will move in this room tonight. It is not a mistake. It is not an accident you are here tonight. It is not a mistake that last week we were dealing with repentance. Tonight we are dealing with this revival fire and the question tonight, who are you going to follow? What are you going to follow? Let's pray together.